Hello and welcome to the Strange Blue Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard. The reason we were playing the Spiders that we've got a huge honour today of Rock and Roll Hall of Fame member Dennis Dunaway, bassist, songwriter, visionary and a lot more in between for the Alice Cooper Band. And obviously for those that really know this stuff, Alice Cooper was a group and the best work for Alice Cooper was done in that period when Alice Cooper truly were a band in the uh, late 60s into the mid 70s. Dennis has written an absolutely fantastic book on his time in the Alice Cooper group called Snakes, Guillotines and Electric Chairs and it's absolutely wonderful. So we'll be playing songs related to Dennis and uh, predominantly linked in with that wonderful tome on the show today. Dennis, welcome to the show. Hi, Jason. I like that visionary part of the introduction. It seemed like, you know, the, the bond between the guy known now known as Alice Cooper, but then Vince Fernier, you were best mates jointly responsible for shaping the path that the Alice Cooper band took. Well, we got the initial idea being art students in high school when we were 16 years old and being friends before we decided to form a band. We got the idea of incorporating surrealistic Dada art type things into a band. And we talked our other bandmates into believing in the same vision. So it was all of us, all five of us together, Michael Bruce, Glenn Buxton, Neil Smith, Alice Cooper and myself that got this idea and followed it through thick and thin until we finally made it happen. The band that eventually became the Alice Cooper group, you know, were the Spiders and you, you released a few singles back in in the mid 60s and we opened with Why Don't You Love Me. That's, you know, a really searing piece of uh, garage rock there. Yes. Uh, do you know where that song came from? No, you tell me, Dennis. Okay. The, the movie Fairy Cross the Mercy came out and uh, the British invasion was gigantic at the time. We went to see it in the theater and it was Jerry Marsden. And there was another band that played a song in the movie, The Blackwells. And the song was called Why Don't You Love Me? And we decided, hey, we like that song. Let's Let's record it. It was actually the flip side of another song that we had done called Hitchhike. Was that Marvin Gaye? Yes, but we actually copied the Stones version. Ah. It feels to me that the, the, the British groups around the time were an influence. And um, the second track today moves on, moves on a year to 1966, and we have your group, The Spiders, again. For me, um, Don't Blow Your Mind feels like a bit of a Yardbirds influence there. Uh, definitely. By then, uh, we had discovered the Yardbirds. In fact, that year, the Yardbirds came to Phoenix, Arizona and played at the local club in Phoenix where we had become the house band. And we didn't know much about them. All we knew is we had this new album of this band that we thought was the next big thing. You know, we were very young. And we thought that in tribute to them, we would open for them by doing an all Yardbirds set. <laughs> we we came on before the Yardbirds and played all of their songs before they came on. <laughs> How did they take to that? Well, you know, I've talked to Jeff Beck in more recent years, and Alice told me that he had too. And, and Jeff Beck said that they remembered that because they were flying into the middle of the desert and they had never even seen a cactus before. And they thought, oh, nobody's going to have a clue who we are. And then the opening band does their songs. <laughs> <laughs> it spurred them on to an incredible set, though. 
you started writing a few songs in this period? Yes, actually, Don't Blow Your Mind was the very first song that Alice and I wrote. And that was through the encouragement of our new band member, Michael Bruce, who wrote songs. Mm. And he was saying, "What you know, you guys are a cover band. Uh, why don't you start writing songs? And we're like, oh, well, we never thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> the spiders and don't blow your mind and um, next Dennis we have a bit of a name change to the to Nas and um, into 1967 and lay down and die goodbye and um, was that around the period that you moved to Los Angeles yes we were starting to migrate to Los Angeles uh, we had uh, been to the Sunset Strip and it was like us going to the land of Oz and seeing all of this excitement going on. And we were pretty big as the Spiders in Arizona and the whole Southwest. We were an up-and-coming garage band with songs on the radio. But another band came out with the name Spiders, so we had to change our name and start all over. 
And at that point, we were also getting a lot more progressive with incorporating our art into our original music. And we were searching for a new style that had never been done before. The Yardbirds' influence was very big at this point, but this was kind of the turning point. Lay Down and Die Goodbye, we re-recorded again much later as Alice Cooper with a completely different version, but this version was very Yardbirds. The interesting thing from Snakes, Guillotines and Electric Chairs was that you really got into that LA scene. You were friends with the Dawes, Jim Morrison, some of the bands as well, some of the bands that came over to LA like Pink Floyd and as well as um, Jimi Hendrix. Uh, Yes, uh, we got to meet all of those people. Musicians tended to hang out together back in those days. There was a lot more camaraderie. Pink Floyd stayed at our house during their first tour. Uh, Sid Barrett wasn't doing well, and they were kind of deciding what they should do about it. David Gilmore was along with them, and uh, unfortunately, Sid wasn't functioning well. Uh, So they were going through a big transition and had to cancel the tour and go back to England and uh, restructure the group. Now, as far as the Doors, they were another L.A. band that was coming up, and as the Naz we became the house band at a big club out on a pier over the ocean, a big giant ballroom that Lawrence Welk made famous with radio shows back in the 30s. And now it had become more of a psychedelic club. And we opened for the doors like we did three or four shows in one day and uh, got to know them quite well. And all kinds of bands were coming through L.A. and We got to meet a lot of people. Uh, Jimmy used to hang out at the Landmark Hotel where our managers lived. Uh, Janis Joplin was there a lot, and the Chambers brothers were there a lot. It seems incredible looking back now. It does, now that everybody uh, is known for what they went on to do. Uh, Back then, it was all just newly happening to everybody, and it hadn't quite sunk in the level of uh, fame that they were all going to have okay well let's listen to naz lay down and die goodbye Oh, to mother, the 
lay down and die goodbye we do have a name change again to alice cooper now and fields of regret there seems to be a few um, misconceptions about how the name alice cooper came about and you seem to set the record straight in your book well i told the way i remember it which uh, is different than everybody else's story there's like you say there's many misconceptions and there's even different versions of the story within the band I remember that we had already had to change our name at a pivotal point from the Spiders to the NAS. And now we thought, okay, we picked the NAS because we figured nobody would ever think of that. And then another band came out called the NAS in America with Todd Rundgren. And uh, so now we were really determined to come up with something that nobody would ever think of. And we were kicking around like uh, so many names, 100 names a day, probably. And then Vince said, Alice Cooper. It's like an American name that's real common. It's like Lizzie Borden. It's like innocent little girl next door that has a hatchet behind her back. And we're like, oh, I don't know. At that point, we were really into shocking audiences with our shows. But uh, also, we were in the Southwest for the most part, and cowboys were uh, always out to beat us up and everything. (laughs) And and so we thought, I don't know if we want to go there, you know. And then we discussed it one night, and then I drove home to my parents' house. This was in Phoenix, Arizona. We were discussing it at a friend's house, these three girls that had a band called The Weeds of Idleness, and we'd meet at their house and hang out. So I went home and my parents said, oh, where, you know, what were you doing? I said, oh, well, we have a new name for the band. They said, a new name? What is it? And when I said Alice Cooper, they both looked completely <laughs> shocked. And, <laughs> and then the next night I went back and now Alice had a backup for his idea. I was like convinced this is we got to do this mm. if we're trying to shock. Uh, audiences this shocks them before we even walk in the door Mm. we'll be playing uh, fields of regret which is from your first album pretties for you for me that song really really standout track for me Uh, most people don't realize that that was the song that planted the seeds of the character that would become alice cooper the other songs on pretties for you each one had a different character And uh, that one was the one that had the dark character. And the audience liked that better than anything else we did. So I told Alice, I said, we can't drop that song and drop that character. We're going to have to write more dark songs. In fact, that character works so well, we should try to make you become that character for the whole set. Now, Alice came up with the character, but I'm the one that kind of got everything focused that that's the direction we should go. It took us a few years to actually learn how to write and really develop the character and give Alice the music to uh, set up the character. But that song was where it started. Again, it seems incredible. And, you you know, you got in with Frank Zappa and you, you signed to his label. Yes, we signed to Bizarre Records. When we landed in Los Angeles, 
there was all kinds of things going on on the streets. It was total zoo. But one day we're walking down Sunset Boulevard during the day, and in broad daylight, here comes these six girls, the GTOs, who look like the circus just came to town. And we decided they were kindred spirits and, and walked over to them, and they took us to a party. And next thing you know, we were hanging out with the GTOs, and they lived in Frank Zappa's basement. And when we heard that Frank Zappa had a new record label, we talked Miss Christine into letting us come over, and Frank didn't even know about it. She hadn't even asked him yet, but we showed up early in the morning, barged into the house, and set up all of our equipment, our amplifiers and drums and everything, in the hallway right outside the bedroom where Frank and his wife Gail were sleeping. And we started playing, and the door opened, and Frank's hand came out motioning for us to stop, and we stopped, and then his head stuck out, and he said, let me have some coffee, and then I'll listen. That's how we got our first record deal.
next song that we're playing after Fields of Regret is um, Nobody Likes Me. The version that I've chosen is from Live at the Whiskey A Go-Go back in 69. Uh, Actually, that's a song that really should have been on Pretties For You, but we ran out of time because we only had from midnight until sunrise two nights to record the album. And somehow that song didn't end up on the album, which I sort of equate to uh, Strawberry Fields not being on Sgt. Pepper or something, it's, even it's though incredible. we certainly weren't the Beatles. But that song that you're going to play, the version, was recorded live. We opened for the Mothers of Invention at the Whiskey A Go-Go. And right after that, we opened for Led Zeppelin there. It's a really high-quality recording as well. Really sort of feels like you're there. Well, uh, this guy, Wally Hyder had the first mobile unit traveling recording studio that we knew of. And Frank Zappa brought him in. They parked the truck out in the street outside the whiskey and ran all of the cords in and recorded it that way. It was cutting edge for its time. Yeah, it's uh, much better than some of the live recordings of that period, actually. Better than Pretty's For You, I might say. <laughs> yeah. Now, during that song, Alice was a different character. He was a little kid 
that was in his room. So we got a screen door and we knocked the screen out. So there was just an empty window and had a curtain and Alice would be inside leaning out the window singing Nobody likes me. It's all my fault. And then we would all be his friends saying, oh, yes, we we all like you. We like you a lot. <laughs> and uh, this was designed. I wrote the song. It was designed because there, we had alienated our audiences so much with this androgynous look that just wasn't what was happening back in those days, even in Hollywood, that I wrote that song to help try to break down that barrier between us and the audience. This song is, we wrote this song right after we got kicked out of Chandler, Arizona. We ran out of, we out of the cowboys, you know. All the hate has built 
the spot. Thank you so much. Oh, it's Cooper, Nobody Likes Me, live at the Whiskey A Go-Go back in 69. Now we move on a year to a track from Easy Action, and it's the song Return of the Spiders for Gene Vincent. Um, one of the reasons I was thinking of playing this, uh, Dennis, was just to ask you about supporting Gene Vincent at the Toronto Rock and Roll Revival. Obviously, that is now a legendary gig because John Lennon was there, but also I think that was the gig where there was some mishaps with a chicken. Yes, they call it the chicken incident. Our pet chicken was mistaken for something collectible by our fans, and they were all fighting over it. Alice tossed it out to the crowd, and they uh, it didn't fare well. It's uh, the demise of our chicken was what everybody talked about after the show. John Lennon and the chicken. We got to back up the great Gene Vincent. Oh, what an honor that was. It was the rock and roll revival. So the old rock and roll bands, Gene Vincent and Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck Berry and everybody, Little Richard, everybody was on the bill. And John Lennon was on the bill as a surprise, but he played his rock and roll songs. And then other bands like The Doors favored their rock and roll songs. Well, what we were doing at the time was uh, totally avant-garde. So in order to give us reason to be on that bill, our managers helped the guy who was uh, promoting the show. Things kind of got out of hand. He felt overwhelmed, especially when John Lennon announced that he was going to be there. So our manager said, okay, we'll take over for you. We'll make this thing happen for you, but you've got to let our band be on the bill. But in order to make it look like uh, validation, they had us also back up Gene Vincent. So we met Gene Vincent at a hotel, and we had a few amplifiers, and he was very nervous. We had heard that he was even had stage fright back in his heyday. And now he hadn't done any shows for a lot of years, and he had never played in front of 70,000 people. So he was very nervous, and he didn't know us or anything, but we wore jeans and T-shirts. And when he showed up, we told him we loved Woman Love, and we loved, of course, Bebopalula, and mm. And we plugged his microphone into an amplifier and got all of this echo on it. And then he was happy. And we said, uh, OK, so what song do you want to start with? And he just went, well, and we knew what song it was. <laughs> and, and I mean, chills shoot up my spine, uh, even telling you about it now. It was just wonderful.
Alice Cooper Return of the Spiders for Gene Vincent. Next, we have I'm 18 by Alice Cooper. It was interesting reading Snakes, Skeletons and Electric Chairs. Easy action, the album didn't really break through significantly in the charts and you were playing a a lot of live shows back in uh, 1970, but on one of those shows you met up with Bob Ezrin and there was that story that he thought you were singing I'm Edgy as opposed to I'm 18. That's right. That was at Max's Kansas City in New York City. And we were not happy about the lack of people for the show. Uh, We were very upset. We thought nobody advertised and we were kind of scraping rock bottom at that time. And we were trying to get a producer that could help us get a hit single. That's all we needed. We had a reputation with Sapa. We had a reputation because of the chickens. So we'd kind of become legendary. But one major thing was missing, a hit single. So we were after Jack Richardson, who produced the Guess Who up in Canada. We were hounding him so much that he decided to send this young guy who had never produced an album to hear us. And then he thought, well, then... We can say we listen to you and and we're going to pass and hopefully we'd stop hounding him. Well, Bob Ezrin was there and we did this very edgy set. (laughs) I'm not surprised he thought it was called I'm Edgy because we were not happy and we put all of that unhappiness into that show. 
And uh, he came up to us afterward and said, you guys really got something. You know, we just have to figure out how to get it into the grooves of a record. And that's what we didn't know how to do. We knew how to write songs and we were actually pretty good musicians, but we didn't know how to write a song that would be a big hit single. And Bob Essern ended up being the person that taught us how to do that. I'm 18 by Alice Cooper from the Love It to Death album. Next, Dennis, I've picked uh, Dead Babies from the Killer album, something that you, you said before, which was talking about Alice Cooper reflecting society, and, and you also sort of glued mirrors on your bass to kind of symbolise that, and for me, Dead Babies has got that kind of link. Yes, it was also had to do with us trying to be shocking without being censored. Back then, the censors were very heavy, breathing down your neck. And if you did anything that was too across the line, then they would simply censor you and nobody would hear it. 
Dead Babies was a way to do something that was shocking. But when it came right down to it, if they're saying, well, you can't do that song with those lyrics, then we would say, oh, well, the song, if you listen to the lyrics closely, are about parental neglect. They weren't watching their their baby, so the baby got the pills off the shelf. And, and so uh, we had loopholes like that that were specifically put in to keep the censors from being able to stop us. And they say, well, why are you chopping up a baby doll on stage? You know, well, that's how we would push beyond. <laughs> we kept trying to push it just a little bit farther. Dead Babies was actually two different songs. Uh, one had a great chorus and a lousy verse, and the other song had the opposite. So both songs were going to fall by the wayside like so many had in those days. We were moving forward at a fast pace. But at the time, the band lived in Pontiac, Michigan, and on a farm. And on a nice day, which was rare, <laughs> we would open these giant garage doors and there was a prison farm across the field. And when these guys liked something that we played, we would hear them all cheering, but not on every song, only on stuff that they liked. So anyway, I talked the band into, let's take the good verse out of that song and take the good chorus out of that song and put them together. And they weren't going for it, but I wrote this bass line to tie it together. We had a rule. You had to try everybody's idea before you gave it the boot. Well, I got them to try it, and the prison farm let out a big cheer, and that's why we pursued that song. That's why it became Fruitation.
Dead Babies from the Killer album, 1971, and also from that fantastic LP we have, Under My Wheels. I was meaning to ask about Alice Cooper's look and your stage costumes, and I understand your your now wife, Cindy, was integral in, in terms of your stage look. Oh, absolutely. Cindy moved to Los Angeles when uh, she heard her brother was in a band that that didn't have any food. (laughs) So she got a job in Hollywood at a place called Inside Outside Boutique. And she used the money to buy food for the band. We weren't an item then. We became an item shortly after, but uh, she didn't like me in the early days. She ran into me a couple times in Arizona, and, and I did not make a very good impression. But finally I did. We'll have our 41st anniversary coming up soon. But she started making, not only sewing our, our street clothes, which were pretty outrageous in those days, uh, but she started finding these fabrics that were shiny and this thing that you were talking about us reflecting society was the theme. So we had sequins and uh, stretch lame fabrics and everything. And pretty much every album cover that the Alice Cooper group did, the original band, were wearing Cindy's designs.
Under My Wheels by Alice Cooper. I mean, the songs really do come thick and fast in this period. And what can you say about this next song, School's Out? I've read that Glenn was the one who uh, created this um, song's wonderful riff. Glenn Buxton came up with the riff, yes. And he plays it the best of anybody I've ever heard. And I've heard a lot of really uh, top-notch musicians play it. The difference is... Glenn was the guy at the back of the class in school. You know, we went to high school together. He was a guy in the back of the class cutting wisecracks low enough that the teacher couldn't hear him, but he could hear uh, the fellow students laughing. That's the feel uh, that we wanted to get in schools out. And when he plays it, he sounds like the kid at the back of the class. Other guitar players tend to sound like the kid at the front of the class, that it's a little too slick. (laughs) but we wanted a song i'm 18 was designed to be relatable by the record buying public you know if you were 18 years old you were living at home you were buying records because you had the money you weren't paying for rent or anything the other songs under my wheels and be my lover were pretty decent hits but they didn't hit home like i'm 18 did So we decided, okay, we've got to write another song that targets specifically that audience. And we were all on the same wavelength because we all went to school at the same time in the same town. So so we all could revert right back to school kids like on a, you know, snap of a finger. And that's what we did. We went back and we all came up with all of the ideas that went into schools out and it kind of fell together effortlessly. That's the only song we ever recorded, I think, that we all knew was a guaranteed hit while we were writing it.
in this period, especially with Skulls Out, you became one of the biggest bands in the world at that time? <laughs> yeah, well, it took me that long to find out. We were playing Schools Out, introducing that album and that show to America. We had just come back from England where we were still promoting Under My Wheels. So we went to England, did one show, and then as soon as we got back to America, we went into a whole different show and different set list that included Schools Out. And we played the Hollywood Bowl. And that's when I finally said, you know, we've made it. You can't play the Hollywood Bowl unless you've made it. Next, we have Elected. This song is a testimony to you and Neil as the, the rhythm section. And it really got that sort of who feel on this one. Absolutely. You know, this also was a song that was recorded on Pretties For You, Reflected. But we decided to overhaul it. We were thinking, okay, Schools Out worked well as a seasonal hit. In other words, every time school would be out, it would be played again. So now we thought, okay, well, there's an election coming up. Why don't we write a song that they'll play every time there's an election? So that was the idea of it. Now we searched around. We said, well, how about if we update Reflected? But Neil and I said, you know, it's got to be a lot more exciting to be a single. So uh, who's the most exciting band that we liked was The Who. So we definitely let their influence shine through on that song.
Alice Cooper elected there. Moving on, um, we have Woman Machine from the Muscle of Love album. Am I right to say, um, also reflecting on what you were talking about in your book, was that the band started to sort of fragment? Well, when we did Woman Machine, it was not so obvious to us. But yes, it was headed in that direction. We had gone up to Toronto to Nimbus 9 Studios, where Jack Richardson and Bob Ezrin worked out of. And we were doing a rehearsal, coming up with songs for our next album, Muscle of Love. And uh, we decided to go way back to our early years as the Spiders. We had written this song, Woman Machine, that we had never finished. And we decided, well, the idea of this album will be us getting back to our roots. So we chose this song and we worked it up and we were all excited about it. And then Bob Ezrin showed up and we said, hey, oh, yeah, cool. Just in time. We got this new song. And we started the intro and he stopped us and said, he wanted to make some changes, and we're like, especially Michael Bruce took offense at that. We're like, you didn't even hear the song. Let's, how about if we play the song before we start changing it? You know, and uh, we all agreed. You know, we thought, what are you changing? You didn't even hear the first verse yet. So Bob took it that we thought that we didn't need him anymore, and that's not what was intended at all. And he got upset and left, and that wasn't that unusual you know we had people that would get mad and walk out but they'd always come back you know it was instead of you know blowing up you would go and let it uh, cool down a bit and then come back but we didn't know that he was not coming back <laughs> Blind. Oh, 
Alice Cooper, Woman Machine, and after this, the, there was a Greatest Hits album that was released, but then you guys, many of you guys went on to solo projects, but Alice's project, Welcome to My Nightmare, kind of became almost a permanent thing, really. Uh, yes, that's what happened. Uh, we didn't know it. I think we, Michael Bruce, Glenn Buxton, Neil Smith, and I were the last to know that that was the plan. The band had, during the Billion Dollar Babies tour, gotten to a point where we were so exhausted, we needed a break. Uh, at least Michael Bruce and Neil felt that. And I had to agree. I was the one that fought to keep the band going, but they thought that we needed a break. And I had to agree on the basis of Alice and Glenn were drinking so heavily that I thought that a break would give them a chance to get their health back and then we could come back stronger than ever. Now, during this break, Michael decided he wanted to record some of the songs that he had that he thought were really good that weren't what the Alice Cooper group needed. So since he decided to do that, then Neil decided, well, I might as well record some songs too. And he asked me to play on his album. And of course, anybody in the Alice Cooper group that asked me to to help them out, I'll be there. Then after that, we started writing the music for the next Alice Cooper album, as we had all agreed. The majority of members of the band decided everything, and we had decided to take a break and then come back and do our next album. That's what we were doing. Uh, Battle Axe, I think, would have been our best show ever. It got derailed because all of a sudden lawsuits started coming our way and all kinds of things, and and uh, we weren't ready for it. I think we were on hold in case Alice was rejected as a solo entertainer and then they would need us again. So, you know, that may not be correct, but that's how it seems. Anyway, we went ahead and did Billion Dollar Babies. And unfortunately, without Warner Brothers involvement, the bill had to be paid out of our pockets. So between that and then finding out that Alice did a solo album and wasn't planning to come back for this, it proved to be emotionally and financially devastating. The music on Battle Axe is really strong. Uh, it could have been a lot stronger, I think, had we not had so many legal defenses forced to be reckoned with. Well, we'll be playing the main track from the album Battle Axe, Billion Dollar Babies. Hi, 
Billion Dollar Babies, Battle Axe. The interesting thing as well about Snakes, Guillotines, Electric Chairs was that although there was quite a lot of, um, I don't know if it was misunderstandings or, or different views about how Vince, who became Alice Cooper, went into the solo career, was that, you know, you remain good friends and, um, you know, there's a real sort of bond between the band. That's one of the reasons I wanted to play uh, one of the tracks from one of Alice's more recent albums, Welcome to My Nightmare, A Runaway Train, because you guys played again, except for obviously the the late Glenn Buxton. Uh, Yes, we got together in New York City and we recorded three songs. One was one that uh, Michael wrote, one that Neil wrote. Let's see, Michael did uh, When Hell Comes Home. And Neil did uh, I'll Bite Your Face Off. I did Runaway Train. And uh, Alice collaborated on those songs with us. We knocked them out in two days in New York City. I think we were all so excited and having so much fun, we could have done a whole album in a week. Oh, <laughs> 
Alice Cooper with the Alice Cooper band, a runaway train from 2011. Next, we're flipping things around a little bit now, and we've got your band, Dennis Blue Coop, but featuring Alice Cooper, another really strong track, Hallow's Grave. This song, I decided just to gather some creative ideas. I walked from Central Park in New York City all the way down Fifth Avenue, all the way to the end of Fifth Avenue, which is Washington Square Park. Then when I got home, I had three songs in my head from what I had seen. And uh, the one about Washington Square Park, I decided, okay, well, let me you know, go online and research these different things and see make sure I know everything interesting about them. And lo and behold, to my surprise, Washington Square Park at one time was out of the city limits of New York City. It's still in Manhattan, but back then it was out of the city. And it was their potter's field. And during the yellow fever outbreak in New York City, they turned it into a mass burial ground to try to stop the spread of yellow fever. And to this day, there are 20,000 bodies buried beneath Washington Square Park. There was also a hanging tree there. And so I incorporated these ideas into a song about walking into the park at night alone. And all of a sudden, there's a girl swinging from a limb of a tree, and she's warning me to be careful because up from the ground comes this hallowed sound and the skeletons jump up and start dancing around poking me with their fingers all bony and bare (laughs) and uh it's a tricky melody it's in three four then to four four and blue coop who are joe and albert bichard from the original blue oyster cult are in my band it's a trio anyway so we presented the song to alice and uh he loved it he did an excellent job singing it as well Absolutely. Um, This is because it brings us pretty much up to date. Hallow's Grave by Blue Coop featuring Alice Cooper is our last song today, unfortunately. But before I go, what's next for you? How can people get their hands on this wonderful book of yours? Oh, it's easy. As they say, it's sold everywhere where books are sold. Uh, You can go to DennisDunaway.com. You can go to Dennis Dunaway on Facebook. It's me there. Say hi. Uh, hopefully I'll be able to make it over to your side of the pond in the near future. And, uh, and you can come and uh, say hi to me. I'll sign your copy. I'll definitely be there. That will be absolutely amazing. Let's play Blue Coop featuring Alice Cooper, Hallow's Grave. Thanks very much for Dennis for his time. It's been absolutely an honor to speak to you today. Thanks, Jason. I really enjoyed it.
in my tracks With her glaring eyes I was trapped like a rat Come here little sweet thing Forget all you know Me and my friends wanna work 